You're listening to Fair Play on justicenews.net. Welcome to Fair Play. I'm your host, Imran Siddiqui. And joining me today to speak about the National Registry of Exonerations is Barbara O'Brien. Barbara is a professor at the Michigan State University College of Law, where she teaches classes in criminal law and procedure. She's currently the editor of the National Registry of Exonerations, which collects, analyzes, and disseminates information about all known exonerations of innocent criminal defendants in the United States from 1989 to the present. Welcome to the show, Barbara, and thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you for having me. So whose idea was this? The two founders of the of the registry um, was a, a Sam Gross is a professor at University of Michigan School of Law and uh, Rob Warden who is at Northwestern or was at Northwestern. Um, they had done a lot of work looking at false convictions and realized that there was, you know, if, if you're interested in this topic, it would be really helpful to have a some source that is dedicated to documenting these cases when they when we learn about them because you know an exoneration is, is a big deal and we should be keeping track of when they happen but there was no single repository of all these cases so there were you know there were lists out there for instance the death penalty information center has one the innocence project maintained one um, but there was no central central source um, that that kept track of this so they started the, the, the National Registry of Exonerations, and then it sort of evolved and grown over the last, uh, last several years to be what it is today. And how many people do you think have been exonerated since then? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I, I have to say, so as of today, we have 2,779 exonerations since 1989. I think when they first launched it, it may have been, I believe it was under 1,000. I think it was something like seven or 800 cases. Wow. Um, now, so that was in um, 2012. Now, some of the, a, a lot actually, of the exonerations that we've added to the registry since then had occurred before the founding of the registry. We just hadn't l- learned about them. Um, we're always adding old cases that we learn about. You know, we might learn of a case where somebody was exonerated in 1991 and we add it to the registry. So, you know, a good chunk of those uh, additional about 2,000 cases uh, were cases that they had been exonerations before the founding of the registry. But a lot of them are new. I mean, we do see, you know, in a typical year, we might have uh, 120, you know, 130 uh, exonerations uh, that we uh, in, in, that take place in a given year. And that doesn't include the the older ones that we find out about. That's beautiful. I mean, the the work that you guys are doing with this registry is phenomenal, because without this, we, we you know most of the masses would never have found out what is going on. I think that the issue of wrongful convictions has really come into a into the spotlight in recent years. And I think that really did start with, um, and then there have been people, there have been scholars who have studied this for years. And, but in terms of capturing the sort of the public's attention, um, it was, I really think that the, you know, when we had in the nineties, when we started to see the late eighties, early nineties, we started to see these DNA exonerations when we had this new technology that we could go back and re-examine old cases. Um, that sort of opened people's eyes to the fact that this is not as rare as perhaps we were led to believe. And 
it's so important, not only for those particular cases, right? I mean, those particular defendants, it's incredibly important to get justice for them. But also, you know, even in cases where DNA can't clear somebody, right? It's just not that type of case. There's, you know, it's not a kind of case where the perpetrator is going to leave behind biological evidence to test. Uh, the fact that we can see these very clear cases of errors uh, in these DNA cases, I think, opens people's eyes to think, well, what else are we getting wrong? What about the cases where there is no DNA to test, but there's all sorts of other problems with the case that you know, if we're making mistakes in those cases, maybe we're making them in these too. And I, so I think that those types of cases um, and that also we were, we're also seeing, I think, more uh, nuanced representations of the criminal justice system in popular culture. But you know, what was really sort of lacking in popular culture was not just sort of like, look at this terrible criminal and what they did and how they're going to get away with it, but actually looking at these miscarriages of justice. And we see things like, you know, podcasts like Serial or In the Dark, um, Undisclosed. I mean, these are really popular uh, podcasts that people are are listening to where they're examining these wrongful conviction cases or what people, what, what many believe are wrongful conviction cases. Um, and, so, you know, I think it's, it's getting the public more engaged in a way that they perhaps weren't before. Out of the 2.2 million people incarcerated in our prison systems, how many do you think are innocent? That is a million dollar question. Um, and my my strong belief um, is that it's many, many more than we would like to believe. But is it 1%, 5%, 10%? I have no way to know. Um and the the reason that you know we 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 document exonerations, and we are always really careful to point out that it's an exoneration. So a false conviction happens, and that person may or may not be exonerated. And but we only know about the cases where the person is exonerated, right? Like we know that there are people in prison who are as innocent as the people on the registry who will never, who, who you know, haven't been exonerated yet, may never be exonerated for lots of reasons. Um, so we really do believe that the registry numbers are a severe undercount of the actual numbers of innocent people who've been convicted of crimes. Can we extrapolate and, and, and estimate? It's it's something that people who study this really have to grapple with. Um, and I think really the best I can say about that is that the exonerees represent only a fraction of the innocent people who've been convicted of crime. Wow. Would you agree that uh, maybe this is the time to start working on an innocence list? to at least start collecting data on those who are claiming to be innocent with clear evidence and hard facts. Yeah, it, it, you know, a lot goes into these these sort of considerations about who we list on the registry. I and mean, it's, it's very important, uh, we believe, those of us who work on the registry, that the, regis- that, that the registry be a very um, sort of transparent and, um, and sort of uh, and actually, you know, small c conservative type of uh, type of resource in that we're I have seen lots of cases just in my own you know work and then you know teaching and then reading about these things I mean there's lots of cases out there where I think this person is likely innocent and I think personally they're innocent but we don't the National Register of Exoneration because we really do want to be the most trusted source on this 
Um, we don't make those decisions, right? Like we don't look at a case and say, well, I think this guy's innocent, so I'm going to put him on the registry. Or, in, you know, sometimes you get, you might get a case where the person qualifies for the registry, but you think, well, I don't know if it's got, I'm not so sure about this case, right? We don't make those calls. Mm. So if somebody meets the criteria of being exonerated, that's, and that's a legal event, right? yep. like that is something that happens either through a governor or a, a court uh, or jury. These are these are things that we can say this don't it's not us. We're not saying this person is not guilty. We're we're showing you how the process has done this. And it's so hard to get exonerated that we feel that, you know, because it's once you're convicted, it's actually really hard to get that undone, um, especially on a basis uh, on a claim of innocence. Um, And so the fact that a that a person who's been convicted can ultimately meet those criteria, we think is a really good proxy for innocence. Of course, we don't know 100% of the time. We suspect we keep, there's a lot of people who should be on the registry that aren't because they don't meet those legal criteria. So for instance, if somebody gets, suppose you have somebody's convicted of a crime and then later it comes out that the prosecution did not disclose evidence they were supposed to disclose and the person is awarded a new trial and maybe they take a plea, right? They get a really, they get something, maybe an offer to plea for time served, or, you know, they, they enter an Alford plea where you're not admitting guilt. Like those people could very well be innocent. And it's a totally rational decision for them to say, I'm not going to take my chances that the system, you know, the system has already done me wrong. Mm. Why should I trust it's going to work better this time? I just want to get out and start living my life. So they take a plea. Yep. And, those cases don't go on the registry because they're, they don't meet the criteria. Uh, but we know that there's lots of people who have entered Alford pleas or taken a plea deal after you know getting a new trial awarded that really do belong on the registry if the system works better. But we don't want to be engaged sort of from where we are looking at a case and saying, well, I think this person's innocent or I think this person's not, and having that go into it. So everything we do um, is based on public information it's all transparent if somebody says somebody writes to us say why did you put this guy on here i don't think he's innocent you know we can share with them the the documents on which we based it our criteria for inclusion in the registry um so that it's never like just trust us you know because why why should somebody trust us what do we know you're listening to fair play the official podcast of justicenews.net This is Fair Play on justicenews.net. Welcome back to Fair Play. This is Imran Tadiki. Today we're speaking with Barbara O'Brien, who is a professor at the Michigan State University College of Law, where she teaches classes in criminal law and procedure. And she's also the editor of the National Registry of Exonerations. How has been your experience meeting or speaking or interacting with an exonerate? A lot of exonerees, you know, they're they're all different types of people and they have all different kinds of experience. And, and you know, some really do struggle upon release and it's totally understandable. And others are, are just really want to channel their energy into preventing this from ever happening to anyone else and, and really telling their story. And, you know, there's all there's all kinds of different experiences and people in different parts of the process for themselves. Right. You know, depending on how long ago they were released, how much time they had served wrongfully. Um, you know, it's just, it's, it's just, it's just, it 
can be extremely heart-wrenching, but also really inspiring to, to meet the, the people behind the stories that we write about. Some of the exonerees that I've come across, I was uh, stunned that I didn't find uh, any anger or animosity in them. That is kind of remarkable. Um, I mean, there are—I mean, there must be, right? We're at almost 2,800 exonerees, and there's going to be a whole variety of reactions. But I would expect, you know, most of them at least would be really angry. And it is remarkable how the, at least the ones I've interacted with are just like, they just don't want to waste time with that, right? Like, they spent so many years fighting to, to be released and have their freedom um, and you know, you would think, oh gosh, I'd be so mad. I could never get over it. And I, I just feel like they probably had to, to really cultivate just such resilience and inner strength to survive that ordeal. It is remarkable how I've, the ones that I've spoken with do seem just genuinely ready to move on with their lives. But at the same time, really committed. A lot of them are very committed to not, you know, sort of for, you forgive, but don't forget, right? To Yeah creating a system where there's, you know, a genuine accountability for the kinds of errors that put them through such a horrible experience. That is true, because I had a chance to speak to some um, individuals who are still in prison, and they have been uh, claiming innocence for three decades or maybe more, which is like mind-blowing that this guy has been claiming, and these guys have been offered plea deals, mm -hmm. and they never took it. Mm -hmm. And it just blows my mind to see that it is so easy to wrongfully incarcerate someone in America, but it's so difficult to help them get out. I agree. Our system is set up in such a way that um, we know once you're convicted, like, you know, your presumption of innocence goes away. And people think that, oh, well, you know, it's okay because they have an appeal. Well, forget the fact that appeals take a long time and we're talking about somebody in, in being sent to prison while their appeal is pending and that's in and of itself horrible, but also that's just not how appeals, direct appeals in our system are designed to work. They're really, uh, direct appeals are, you know, right after you're convicted, you have the right to an appeal um, in, all, in all the different jurisdictions and they're really designed to, to fix legal errors. Like did the judge wrongfully allow certain evidence to come in or did the judge give the right jury instruction but if it's just, if it's a factual error right like you could have a case with no legal errors right it's just you know witnesses say that's the guy i saw him right i saw him commit this crime and they could be totally wrong and if the jury believes them that's it right like you're just that's not something the appellate court is designed to fix so it's incredibly difficult. Uh, you also only have an, uh, the right to an attorney on your first appeal. You're not entitled to an attorney everywhere after that process. And, you know, as a former appellate attorney myself, I can tell you that, you know, that's also, that's not a situation where you really can bring in new evidence. I mean, there are ways, if you have, say, a, a witness who recants or you learn that the prosecution hid evidence, um, or, you know, something new comes up that calls into question your innocence, you're not necessarily entitled to an attorney to deal with that because that's not appropriately brought on direct appeal for all sorts of procedural legal reasons. So it is, I agree with you, it's incredibly difficult to undo a wrongful conviction. But why do you think those prosecutors and judges who know about the wrongful conviction, 
they don't come forward to address the wrong that they've done. Well, that's a yeah, that's there's a lot going on with that question. I mean, I could talk for days about that. I mean, so there are I should be clear, there are plenty of cases where a person is wrongfully convicted and nobody did anything wrong, right? Like it eyewitnesses say, you know, this is the person who did it. Like they, they see a lineup, they pick the person. And then the way human memory works is that it can often then they become sort of more sure as time goes on. And there was, maybe there was no tampering with the witness. Maybe everybody thought everything was above board. Um, you know, in those cases, it seems like there shouldn't be a whole lot of ego on the line, but I think there's just a human tendency to sort of, I mean, to not want to admit errors. So even if you didn't do anything wrong, the fact that you were the prosecutor, you were the judge, that, you know, there's a sense of responsibility. I think that can be really painful to face that, right? Even if you didn't intend to do any wrong, even if you thought you were doing things by the book, the idea that you contributed to this travesty of justice, I can understand that there's some sort of human resist, like just normal psychological resistance to that. Um, in terms of, of wrongdoing, I mean, then there's lots of reasons why people would want to cover up their wrongdoing. I mean, it, it, it's, you know, everything from they're bad, right? They're just, they're just sinister or they, they, they don't see what they did as being wrong. They don't believe that the person is actually innocent. They think that it's just, you know, that they're somehow manipulating the system. I mean, all these, these stakes are really, really high. So on one hand, you think everybody would sort of be able to put their own sort of egos or these cases can be complex. And I think it's just easier sometimes to tell yourself that you didn't do anything wrong. Um, now that said, uh, you know, the, the registry put out a report this past fall on government officials who commit misconduct. And it is, I mean, misconduct is incredibly prevalent in the cases in, on the registry. And that can range from things like not disclosing that you made a deal with a witness on their own case to testify against your defendant, like that's misconduct. Uh, tampering with a, you know, in, manipulating a witness is, is misconduct. Uh, for, there's, you know, cases of forensic misconduct. You know, there's all different kinds, and we see it really, really high rates of it in the cases that result in exoneration. So it is, it is, it is a very troubling pattern, and there's just not really much of a system of accountability for that. It's, it's really unusual to find a case where an official who engages in misconduct actually faces real consequences for it. And I think that's a problem. Do you think I'd be correct to say that the one of the biggest democracies of the world that hold the flag of justice has a criminal justice system which is unjust? I think you'd be in good company saying that. I mean, we have... <laughs> Like, I mean, we're not, I mean, we're doing something wrong, right? Because our incarceration rates are so incredibly high and we don't, it's not like, well, you know, it's working. We don't have any crime. Um, you know, there's so many different forces that go into that, right? There's, there's, I mean, there's a whole economic system behind the, you know, behind the prison system and, and you know, keeping that, like keeping those prison beds full. It just reminds me of a, um, you know, recently uh, New York had passed some cash bail reform, 
and I was just, you know, looking at the newspaper and I see this article that took place in my hometown. It's in upstate New York. It's a really small town. And it was an article about how since the cash bail uh, reform had come, that they, they couldn't fill the beds, like the jails were not nearly as full. And I thought, oh, this is a feel-good story. And then I was reading this, actually, no, this is a crisis for the county because they really need to keep those beds full to get money from some government agency. And now they don't know how they're going to you know, pay for this or that. Or you think about like uh, bail bondsmen, right? That that they, you know, the ones who make the money. So your, you know, your your brother gets arrested, and you go to the bail bondsman, and you you know you arrange for them to bail them out, and so they get a cut of that. There's so many systems that are in place that it's going to be uh, that, that facilitate incarceration. That I think that any movement to push back on that, you just have to expect a lot of resistance. This is Fair Play on JusticeNews.net. This is Fair Play on JusticeNews.net. Welcome back to Fair Play. This is Imran Tadiki. And today we're speaking with Barbara O'Brien, who is a professor at the Michigan State University College of Law, where she teaches classes in criminal law and procedure. And she's also the editor of the National Registry of Exonerations. One thing I wanted to ask you, I mean, and I think that's a part of what you do is... How can we, if there is a possibility, predict false conviction? You know, we do, in the the registry, not only do we provide a narrative for each of the exonerations, we also do, we we kind of code them for certain factors. So we're, you know, we have a database that you can search that shows, you know, what are the, what kinds of crimes are they? What what was the year it happened? What were certain factors associated with it? Was there a false confession? Was there perjury? We're always a little bit um, careful about saying that, you know, these factors, you know, mistaken witness identification, false confession, all these things are predictors of of a false conviction. I'm like, yeah, of course they are, right? Like, if it, was, if it wasn't a mistaken identification, we wouldn't have had a wrongful conviction. You know, but again, what I always have to remind people is that we are looking at, we have exonerations as our best proxy for false conviction. So we don't know what we don't know, right? So the, the, the cases that have say, some sort of official misconduct, maybe hiding evidence. The only reason they're an exoneration is because that somehow against the odds came to light. Mm. Um, so it's really hard to sort of say, like, just, you know, looking at all criminal cases, what are the best predictors? I mean, I can I can theorize, and I would say, I think, um, cash bail. So the fact that somebody who is in, I mean, the most, if you look at the registry, you would think that all the crimes are, there are all these, these serious felonies. Right, because that's what are overrepresented among exonerations. We do have cases of misdemeanors or low-level felonies, but if you actually look at the criminal justice system as a whole, I mean, misdemeanor prosecutions are a huge component of of all the criminal cases in the United States. Um, and so, you know, you have somebody who's charged with a misdemeanor. Maybe they have a prior, or maybe they don't, and they don't get, they can't make bail, so that. People plead guilty just to get out of jail. Wow. So when people are charged with, with a misdemeanor or a low-level felony and they're given an offer to plead and they can get out of jail and they can get back to their kids, they can get back to their job that they're worried they're going to lose, they're going to plead to something they didn't do. We know that that happens. We have instances of that in the registry. Wow. But one can only imagine how often that's going on and it never leads to an exoneration. Wow. Right? We'll never know because 
people aren't paying attention. You know, somebody served 10 days in jail for a minor drug offense. They didn't do it. It wasn't their drugs or it wasn't even drugs at all. And it's never going to be discovered because who's going to take that case, right? Like they don't have the resources to go and clear their name. They're going to try to get on with their life. I think that's a big risk. Uh, the, the, the use of um, really onerous pretrial conditions can be a huge risk factor for false convictions. I think that, um, you know, anytime that the defense is overworked and under-resourced, that's going to increase the risk of false convictions, either through false guilty pleas or just for poor trial performance. And then, you know, there's incentive structures in place to, um, you know, to use, say, jailhouse informants. Um, or, you know, we don't have great accountability mechanisms. If somebody fails to turn over evidence that they're supposed to, they probably won't get caught. And if they do, probably nothing will happen. Um, so there's a lot of things, I think, that, you know, that speak to sort of all aspects of the criminal justice system that also increase the risk of a false conviction. How critical do you think is to select a fair and, and, and impartial jury? And does that happen? And what, what kind of role do you think race plays in jury selection? Okay, well, that's an interesting question because that's my other line of research is race and jury selection. Uh, so I have a lot of thoughts about that. Um, well, I think we, we do need to acknowledge the fact that, you know, 90 some odd percent of cases, uh, convictions are through guilty pleas. So juries are the exception as opposed to the rule. And even in cases that you go to trial, it's, 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 it's not that uncommon to have a bench trial. Uh, my own and colleagues' research has shown that, you know, race is a significant factor in jury selection. It, it has a, you know, problems in terms of creating the jury pool, sort of who's summoned for jury service. Um, and then in the exercise of peremptory strikes, so the parties can, you know, when you're selecting a jury, you have sort of a certain number of, like, freebies, right, where you can just, you could just excuse a juror, you could strike the juror using a peremptory strike. You don't have to give a justification. Uh, although the only thing you're not supposed to do is strike based on race or gender, but every I, I you know I, I think that this is pretty um, non-controversial to say that that it's really easy to get around that rule, and certainly in my research with a colleague of mine looking at jury selection in in capital cases, um, you know race is a huge factor, and in it, it's um, it's pernicious. And it's very stereotype driven. Um, and, you know, it's a separate wrong apart from the accuracy of the proceedings, right? Like regardless of the, whether the defendant is actually guilty of what he's charged with or innocent of it, it's still a wrong, right? And it's, it's a wrong that's done to the people who show up for jury service or being good citizens and then are being based on, you know, bias and stereotypes and prejudice. They're being told they're like that they're they're not wanted, and that has a substantial cost, I think, um, to those jurors and to the integrity of the system as a whole. Now, I should point out, I always think of my my research. You know, I do false convictions, but then I also do the jury selection stuff, and I've never really seen them intersect until the case of Curtis Flowers. I don't know if you're familiar with his case. Um, um, no, I'm not. Oh well, I, I think if you're if you're not, you'd be really interested in, in reading about his case, and I think your listeners would be as well. He was the subject of a really uh, really well done podcast in the dark uh, a few years ago. You can you can give us a little quick background about it. 
Sure. Um, so Curtis Flowers was a is a, a black man who was uh, convicted of a quadruple murder in his small Mississippi town. Um, and on very, very flimsy evidence. And he had a total of six trials and um, several of which ended in a hung jury. The others resulted in a conviction and a death sentence. Um, but there were reversals. The Mississippi Supreme Court had reversed based on prosecutorial misconduct. And also part of that prosecutorial misconduct was um, striking black jurors excessively. Uh, it's a very segregated community, but it's, I think my my recollection is it's about 50-50 uh, uh, white people and black people. Um, and the, the, the strike, he was using like all of his strikes to get rid of the black people. And eventually went to the United States Supreme Court, which said, no, you can't do this anymore. Like, we're serious about this. You cannot. This is this is just sort of flagrant racism and jury selection. They awarded him a new trial. So it would have been his seventh trial. And finally, the attorney general's office had stepped in as a state. And, and I guess the, the prosecutor who had tried him those first six times uh, agreed to let the attorney general's office uh, of the state take over. And they dismissed the charges because along the way, there was it, it wasn't just about the jury selection. It was witnesses who were being pressured to say certain things, witnesses then recanting at the next trial jailhouse informants who admitted they lied to get benefits that hadn't been revealed to them. I mean, there's just this long, sordid history. And this is a case where the racism against the potential jury members really was, I think, designed to to sort of harness racism against this defendant. Because the town was so split in public opinion about his guilt or innocence, and it was split along racial lines. So, you know, usually I think of the, the race and jury selection as sort of separate and apart from the accuracy of the outcome um, in the sense whether you know, does the jury get it right or not? But in this case, they were so close, they were so intertwined that, he, that keeping black jurors off that jury was like part of the prosecution strategy to convict this person in the face of really shift you know like just the, the the evidence just from one trial to the next just was like shifting and changing and and you know would have given anybody pause wow he's truly free now he's out of parchment prison he's off the death row and he's living his life this is fair play on justicenews.net this is fair play on justicenews.net welcome back to fair play this is Imran Tadiki. Today we're speaking with Barbara O'Brien, who is a professor at the Michigan State University College of Law, where she teaches classes in criminal law and procedure. And she's also the editor of the National Registry of Exonerations. In the absence of DNA evidence, how, how does one handle false eyewitness testimony? And then, especially when it's intersecting with a uh, lying informant, a, a lying jailhouse informant. How how does one handle something like this? There, there's a misconception, I think, that a lot of people have that that exoneration means that there was DNA testing, and it's actually the case that it, that DNA exonerations are you know an important part of 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 the you know our archive of exonerations, but it's a minority of cases. Most of the exonerations we see do not have any new DNA testing. 
getting an exoneration through DNA testing is no picnic, right? Like you've got to find the evidence that was used that was 25 years old and it's sitting in a box in some evidence room and you've got to you know get access to it and you've got to get it tested and, and everybody's got to agree. So that's certainly not to say it's easy to get a DNA exoneration, but it's a, usually a little bit more clear cut once you've gotten to that point. But when you have cases where you don't have that or maybe there's DNA testing, but it's not really the whole ball game, you know, it might be there's some piece of evidence that was tested and doesn't really tell you one way or the other, it kind of, you know, leans in one direction, but it's not going to, it's not dispositive. Um, you need, and this is the heartbreaking thing, is that it's so important to have an advocate on the outside with resources to work on your behalf to get the affidavits from recanting, to find the witnesses, just to interview them, to see if their story is the same, to get, you know, persuade them to give an affidavit. I mean, some people are afraid. They're saying, yeah, I lied because the cop threatened me, but I don't want to go on record saying that because then, that, then they're going to know I committed perjury. So it, it takes a lot of expertise and resources to reinvestigate these cases. And that's why, you know, innocence organizations, so like a lot of, you know, Innocence organizations might be like a nonprofit law firm that focuses on false conviction cases, or it's a um, part like a clinic in a law school where students can sort of learn how to do this kind of work uh, under the supervision of a licensed attorney. Um, and also what we've seen is, and I think this is a really exciting trend, I don't think it's going to fix the problem, but it's, it's important it's an important development is the creation of conviction integrity units. Sometimes they're called conviction review units or CIUs. Um, and these are, you know, um, distinct, like separate divisions within a prosecutor's office that are tasked with reinvestigating cases when there are credible claims of innocence. Um, and Virginia just launched one. Right. They have a statewide and that's actually really interesting because the CIUs that, that, you know, they are only about, you know, 10 years old or so. Um, and there was a couple of like big metropolitan offices that opened them, like Dallas, Texas and Harris County. And then um, then they stood now more and more prosecutors in are opening them in the in their counties. But it's also one thing we're seeing that I think is really I think could be really, really good is these statewide offices, because, you know, if you're the Philadelphia D.A., and you know you're the cook county in chicago da like you've got a lot of attorneys working for you you have a lot of cases but if you're a small office with just a handful of attorney you know handful of prosecuting attorneys you don't you don't have the resources to create a separate unit that's independent and like it just doesn't make sense in those situations yeah. you don't it, you're not you know you're maybe a five attorney shop and of course you're not going to dedicate somebody entirely to that job. They got case, you know, they've got lots of cases to do. So the, so I think what these statewide offices can do, because Pennsylvania has one, um, there, there are a few others that it, it can maybe pick up the slack in some of these smaller counties that really do, maybe there's a prosecutor who really does want a case to be looked at again, but they don't have the resources to do it, or there's a conflict of interest with them doing it. And it kind of allows for that um, sort of an economy of scale. Right, that they can uh, they can pick up the slack when you have a smaller or mid-sized office that doesn't have the capacity to have its own conviction integrity unit. Uh, how can we reform the criminal justice system to reduce, if not completely eliminate, these tragic errors of judgment in the future? 
So, well, that's a very big question. And, you know, any system, any human system is going to create errors. Like that, I, I mean, absolutely, 100%. But I mean, we, we have to take, we have to treat wrongful convictions the way we would treat any sort of catastrophic event. So, I mean, flying is very safe and it's safer than it's ever been. And yet, so what in part of the reason is, you know, when there's a plane crash, there is a very deep investigation into what went wrong. It's not necessarily about finding a villain or blaming somebody, but it's about finding out what went wrong and that can lead to improvements to prevent the same kind of catastrophe from happening again. So if if these exonerations are just treated as sort of like a one-off event and, you know, we fix the problem, it's fine, then you can't learn from those mistakes. So we really do need to be treating exonerations as you know, there are case studies in, in what went wrong. Um, and, I, I, and I am more optimistic than I've been in the past. And I think part of it has to do with, I do see sort of a shift in people's uh, views on this, right? That it's, I mean, if you look at what true crime used to be, it used to just be about like, you know, here's a serial killer and what a monster. And now you see all these true crime things that are like, you know, this for popular consumption that are about like a possible wrongful conviction. And there's an appetite for progressive prosecutors who genuinely want to create systems that prevent these kind of errors and who are willing to go back and look at prior convictions to see if there were mistakes made. Um, but, you know, I mean, I, I also think that part of the problem, and again, this is all kind of relates to that, you know, I don't think of false convictions as some sort of, you know, sort of a niche problem. Like I see it as, you know, part of this entire system that we've created. And, you know, if we have so much criminalization and so many people being shuffled through the system, uh, it, 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 we're going to be less accurate, right? Like we're, we don't have the kind of attention that we would need to figure out what happened here. Um, what, you know, what are some plausible other explanations? Um, you know, the resources to let the defense be able to investigate or to hire experts because there's just such a volume of cases. I mean, there's just so many people coming in and out of the system all the time. If you spend any time in a in a criminal court in any sort of, you know, even from even in a moderate sized city, not even, let alone a big city, you just, it's like an assembly line. And we're gonna make more mistakes if we don't slow down. That's a great point. Because, uh, yeah, I mean, we have people exonerated, they come out, everyone's happy, we talk about it, and then it's just gone on under the rug. And then people just forget about it. But what you're saying is that each exoneration should be looked at with a microscope to find out where we messed up within the system. Right. And I mean, I think about this in terms of like how hospitals have dealt with, I, I mean, I'm, I'm just certainly outside of my area of expertise, but my understanding is that, you know, in, in recent years, the last few decades, hospitals have really sort of changed how they've approached mistakes right, where they've sort of taken more of like the, the approach that like the FAA takes when there's a, a, yeah. a you know, an accident with an airplane, right? And, um, you know, creating systems, of, you know, sort of, you know, checklists and sort of, you know, systems like safety nets and things like that, uh, because they looked at it as like, and I'm, look, and I'm not saying that when somebody breaks the rules in the sense, you know, if, 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 
police or prosecutors or forensic analysts is engaged in misconduct, like, there has to be accountability for that. This isn't just like forgive and forget, right? There's a there's an impor- that's an important piece of the equation. Um, but you don't necessarily. But, but at the same time, we can look at an, a, every case of wrongful conviction in, in, through the lens of you know without necessarily trying to assign blame, figure out where the system fell apart. Like where where did the cascade of events begin that led to this catastrophe? And then if there are people along the way who did things that require accountability from them, then absolutely, right? This is it's not about oh, you know, let's just, you know, let's just assume the best of everyone because I think a huge part of the problem is that we don't have good systems of accountability uh, for our officials. Um, but it's not an either or, right? It's not simply just a, let's figure out what happened and, and not blame anyone or blame the villain. Do you think the registry has been successful in making police officers, prosecutors, defense attorneys and judges more sensitive to the problem of wrongful conviction? I really like to think so. And I mean, I do see some evidence of it. Um, you know, uh, I know that our statistics are used quite a bit in pol- when people are lobbying for policy changes. Um, you know, for instance, finding compens- you know, providing a statutory compensation for exonerees. Um, you know, just uh, last month or maybe with two months ago, um, one of our reports was cited in an Ohio case that uh, ordered new trials for two defendants who had been claiming their innocence. I do know that some more progressive prosecutors, when they're creating their conviction integrity unit, so for instance, the new uh, prosecutor in LA County in California, um, is is pointing to, you know, in creating the conviction integrity unit or revamping the one they had, they're looking to some of our reports about conviction integrity and what makes them work well, what makes, you know, what makes them stronger, some stronger than others. I do think that we are part of a, a system of, you know, with Innocence Network, the Innocence Project, um, and, and others. I don't want to leave anyone out, but I do feel like we are sort of part of a bigger systemic effort to let people just see that these are not anomalies. That these, this is. I don't want to say it's a feature, not a bug. That I'm sort of tempted to say it's a feature, not a bug. It's. That, you know that we have false convictions because obviously nobody's setting out to have a false conviction, but um, it's 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 far too common to, to claim that they're an anomaly. When it comes to reconsidering the guilt of a defendant, you know who is who's already been convicted, but new evidence has uh, new evidence of innocence has come to light, and it's it's hard evidence. You can't run away from it, but but yet people still have a difficult time to reconsider the guilt of this defendant. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that is? Well, I mean, you know, sometimes, it, you know, sometimes the evidence, the new evidence of innocence is like just, you know, absolutely incontrovertible, but it's often more ambiguous than that. And so it allows for, for interpretation, right? You could say, well, maybe this recanting witness is, is, is you know, lying now because, whatever reason or yeah okay so this witness had a deal and they never disclosed it but there's still this other evidence right so there's as long as there's some ambiguity there's going to be room to sort of spin your own story um and it's it's hard to admit the system made a mistake and often if it's a case you know sometimes sometimes there's there's plenty of cases in the registry where there was no culprit right like no crime happened 
for, you know, for instance, an arson, a case that was prosecuted as an arson, but it turned out it was an electrical fire, right? But often there is a perpetrator out there. Like somebody actually did do this and sort of admitting that we got the wrong person and now it's going to be impossible to catch the person who actually did it. There's a, there's a lot of motivation to, to think you got it right the first time. What would you say to an average person like me, for example, you know, listening to you and just discovering about this uh, exoneration list and, and about the whole concept of exonerations, what role can an average person play in this whole process? I think, you know, the more you educate yourself, um, you know, we have a lot of resources um, and links to other resources that you can find to learn about it. And then I would say, you know, be an informed voter. Local elections matter a lot. Like who are who's your in your you know, the state legislature? They're passing the laws that are being used to convict people, and for better or worse, right? They're setting the budgets for indigent defense. Um, local prosecutor elections are incredibly important, and we're seeing, I think, in, at least in at least in some you know pretty big metropolitan areas, the the electorate getting a lot more engaged and really thinking, you know, not just sort of going with the whole law and order mentality, but, you know, wanting somebody who's a little bit more nuanced, a little bit more holistic in their approach. So, the, you know, all these things are happening at the local level. You know, it's a national registry of exonerations, but these are cases that are, you know, happening in some, you know, in a county courthouse and by the decisions of the elected prosecutor um, and how the defense is funded, that can turn a lot on, you know, local appropriations. Uh, and, and so really, I think, you know, engaging with this on a local level, um, I think can, can be a lot more powerful than people realize. This is Fair Play on justicenews.net.